If you're a venture capitalist, the, your biggest fear is not that Sam Bankman-Fried takes your money and you lose $30 million. It's that FTX is the next trillion dollar company and you weren't there. That's the calculation they're all making is that this thing looks like a rocket ship. It actually, actually has gone in revenues from 20 to 100 to 950 to a billion. And, and, it's a, and the revenues are gonna be a byproduct of like how many people wanna gamble in this casino. I'm Mary Long, and that's Michael Lewis, the author and financial journalist behind bestsellers like Moneyball and The Big Short. Earlier this week, Motley Fool CEO and co-founder Tom Gardner caught up with Lewis at a special event for Motley Fool One members. Tom talked to Lewis about his latest book, Going Infinite, which follows the meteoric rise and fall of crypto's once golden boy, Sam Bankman-Fried. In a way, I may have one question for you, and that's it or I may have 712 other questions. So there's no real in-between. So here's the first question. Could you tell the story of FTX? Two versions. Version number one is the version where Sam Bankman-Fried is overwhelmed, doesn't have good operating capabilities in the organization, and is genuinely making an effort to advance his ideals and to do something he believes in and his intentions are good. That's version one. And version two is he's a fraud and he was a fraud from the very beginning. Please tell the two versions if you can. <laughs> Tom, you've gotten lazier as an interviewer. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you got, I so, said I have so, 714 other questions. So, no, this is good. That, so, so um, all right, let's... The, the, the fraud from the very beginning gets complicated uh, because I don't, I, I don't actually know how to do what you just described. So you have 712 questions uh, because I think that I think you, we, we got the, the story that kind of reveals itself in the book is one leading to the other. I mean, I, I that this that it starts with catastrophically bad management controls, all the rest and then tilts into something else. Um, like it doesn't start, for example, it doesn't start with him creating an exchange so he can take customer deposits. And, and we know that because, because he doesn't even want to create an exchange. He, that, that he's got this trading firm and it's a kind of like modeled on the Jane streets of the world. It's a high frequency crypto trading firm and it's found the existing crypto exchange infrastructure inadequate. And he's always, they build something they want to trade on and they try to get all the other crypto exchanges to just buy it from them or maybe, maybe get a licensing fee from it because they don't think Sam and his little collection of effective altruists, they don't think they actually can deal with ordinary people. They would have no idea like what a customer is and don't want to know. And so it, it's only after everybody turns them down that they even start the exchange. Um, and so, so the idea is like it was set up to like steal people's money. That's that doesn't ring true. Um, the idea that it's like a simple Ponzi scheme. I mean, this definition of a Ponzi scheme, and I don't think this really exactly fits it. It's two businesses. He had he had the the exchange ends up being. I think, I mean, there's wonky stuff that goes on it, but the the business itself was very lucrative. I mean, it was a simple business. They had, by the end, they were trading $250 billion of crypto a month on it, and they'd take out a little fee. 
and the revenues are somewhere between 900 million and a billion dollars a year. And if they, and, and one of the reasons, you know, one of the mysteries of the story, if you're, if you start thinking about it in any kind of detail or with any kind of nuance, is that virtually everybody inside FTX uh, went down with it. That they, that they, all the employees had all, not only their life savings, but like family members and all the rest. And it's because they only saw the FTX part of it. So FTX looks to the people who are inside of it like, like it's a money machine. Like what could go wrong here? The problem is there's this other business and it's the legacy business. It's the business he started when he leaves Wall Street, uh, Alameda Research, which, which you know, starts as we're gonna be, we're gonna be Jane Street for crypto. We're gonna exploit little inefficiencies in the crypto markets. And it's a really, it's a good idea but it would be a much better idea if you had Jane Street management doing it because it's 20 effective altruists and Sam and none of them, Sam doesn't care and none of the rest really know how to build one of these firms. Uh, and that firm got itself in, in complicated way, well, in the end it's simple, but it complicated, there was a complicated mechanism by which it ended up uh, putting FTX in total peril. There are all kinds of there are things like the trial is going on now, right? I'm going I'm going to the trial on Thursday and Friday and Monday to watch. I think Sam Bankman-Fried testified. Little if he does that, I'm gonna I'm gonna go for it. Uh, and I had expected the trial to to answer a couple of questions that I was left mystified by. Even you know, in all, I finished this book in August, uh, and one of them was. And you would think it, you would think this would have been resolved, but I don't think it has been. Like where the money went, you know, the hand wavy thing is Sam Bankman-Fried took customer money and he spent it on condos in the Bahamas and political donations and and irresponsible venture capital investing. But if you actually look at the details of the money they actually spent, it's it's a it's a fraction of what they've lost. And I, I expected the prosecution to figure out through the other principles where that money went, like where, where the, I assume there were like some big crypto trades that we just didn't know about. And, and some hacks. But, and some hacks, but the, it's clear from the trial, the trials made this even murkier, that even the people who are testifying for the prosecution thought like Gary Wang, thought that we're, we're against closing down Alameda as recently as last September because they think it's profitable. They think it's making 400 or 500 million dollars in trading profits. And that lined up with my reporting that all the, the, the rank and file in Alameda thought that this day to day trading was profitable. And the other, so the other odd thing is, and nobody's talking about this. Now, anthropic? And it's not, and it's, yeah, well, not just anthropic. The, this is, it's not, it's interesting. It's not admissible in court. But the bankruptcy people have the last report they filed, they gave us some numbers. And so I'm using their numbers, but it, that there were $8.6 billion in customer deposits missing and that they had located $7.3 billion already. And, and this is this is before selling some very valuable, like a maybe a $3 billion stake in Anthropic. And the the location, John Ray, who was running the bankruptcy, said, it's crazy, man. Every day we're finding money. Like, it's not like, it's like lost keys. It's not like they're going and getting the money back from some politician who that, that Sam Bankman-Fried gave it to, though there's a little bit of that. There are actually accounts that are at crypto firms, at, at banks, where the money is. And 
this lines up with the, one of the first people who was kind of in the room when it all starts to fall apart, is struck by how the principals didn't seem to even know where, like they're looking for the money. And, and a call comes from a bank saying, hey, we got $300 million of your money, you want it back. And I would love to be a fly on the wall of this process because I, I, you know it is entirely possible that we're gonna be sitting here in a year and Sam Bankman-Fried is gonna be sentenced to 50 years in jail and the depositors are gonna get their money back. Well, I, I, I mean, it's, it's, I would say it's almost certain they're gonna get their money back at this point. Cause now, cause, I, cause I, the, I mean, I think like Bernie Madoff, um, the 27,000 victims of Bernie Madoff are at 88% repayment at this point, 13 years later. But it, go ahead. No, but it's different because in the case of Madoff, the way they got their money back was people who Madoff had paid it out to had it clawed back from them. In this case, the money appears to be there. Like it's different. This isn't clawbacks. There, there may be a whole other round of, well, John Ray and the bankruptcy people actually go and succeed in clawing back money that Sam Bankman-Fried gave away or invested a year ago. But that's not that that's not what's happened so far. That's a that's the next step. And what's 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 interesting is in order to in order to claw money back. I mean, it's just by the, the, the rule of that game is you have to show that when the money was a, a couple of things. But one of the things you need to show is that when the money was given or paid or whatever by Sam, uh, that that FTX was bankrupt and they haven't actually been willing to say when FTX was actually bankrupt. Mm -hmm. And the prosecutors aren't really aren't willing to argue that there's a hole there until last June. Mm -hmm. So that would mean that everything before June is unclawbackable. Mm -hmm. So the Madoff thing is different. Madoff mm -hmm. thing is like, yeah, it was a it was a very mm -hmm. classic Ponzi scheme. This is just just different. I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying that like we have a new story in the history of financial scandals. It's, it, it rhymes with some other stories, but it's not exactly the same thing. Have you ever read the book Famous Financial Fiascos by John Train? God, ages. Old. That's an old book. That is an right? old book. But it's a I mean, great, a it's a great collection of, 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 you know, somewhere between incompetence and fraud, but usually tilting more towards fraud. So I only want to follow up with this question one more time. What percentage of this do you think is incompetence? And what percentage of this do you think is uh, opportunistic, intentional, and criminal. So it's obviously criminal uh, in that he's going to go to jail. I mean, he's broke. They broke. They obviously. I mean, even the facts that were agreed upon going into the into the trial uh, by both sides, it was hard to see how you were going to tell a story that kept you out of jail if you were Sam, uh, because nobody was disputing that the money was in the wrong place. Uh, and that we've been, been in the wrong place from the very beginning that they, when they started the exchange, the exchange couldn't get bank accounts. So they used Alameda bank accounts. And so if you, Tom sent in, uh, uh, dollars to FTX, you were actually wiring it to Alameda and you'd have gotten a statement that said it's going to Alameda. Um, so, so that in itself is probably like end game over it, it, the intention, you know, though. The, the, let's, let me get let me get myself in a little trouble. I've, I've already gotten myself in so much trouble. Let me keep doing it because it's interesting. Because we live in a world right now. This is Kahneman Tversky land, where after the fact, people go back and tell a story that makes it all seem much simpler than it was. Mm -hmm. and, and you published and, the book in August, so it, it's much more of a real time journalistic expression than yes. um, now that I have gathered these documents over the last 12 years, let me explain exactly what happened and where we should be judging and where we should be um, 
simply evaluating. But but everybody and their brother, Sam Bankman-Fried has no friends. They're like everybody thinks he's a criminal. Everybody thinks he's going to jail. And everybody thinks it's obvious, kind of in some way obvious. Um, it was obvious to zero people until it all, all fell apart. I mean, it was obvious that you could say about any crypto firm, there's likely something going on there that you, you don't want to know about or you do want to know about. That was true across crypto. But no one said the thing that would have brought it down immediately, which was the customer's money is in the wrong place. And, uh, and, and he was, Sam begged me free. Part of the fun of this story is the, is the, is, is the mirror he holds up to the culture. It's like when things were going well, there was no one who had a, had a bad word to say about him. I mean, he, he could get into any political office he wanted to, every, any, have dinner with any celebrity he wanted to. 120 venture capital firms invested in him. So like, if it's all so obvious, why, why? Like, why wasn't it obvious then? And so the, the intent thing is, is, get, is where it gets messy. No one wants to believe this, but this is why it makes it such a fun and interesting story to me to tell. I, there is no question in my mind that he was, he and his group, like, were all in on the effective altruism idea, whatever can you, you think Can about. you explain what effective altruism, altruism yes, is yes. for somebody who hasn't you, encountered it? You're probably going to start laughing at some point because you, but, but it was, so it's a, it's a philosophical movement that began in Oxford in 2008. It grew out of utilitarianism. And it, and it was these Oxford professors arguing that not only do you have a duty to philanthropy, but that you, you should start thinking about how you spend your dollars and your time in a more rigorous way to maximize the benefit to other human beings. And a philosopher named Hotobi Ward writes a famous paper saying that, showing that if he just gives half of his salary away for the rest of his career, he could, for example, uh, prevent blindness in 80,000 African children if he gives it away the right way. And so it begins as an argument about being rigorous about doing good for others, like being really hard-nosed about it rather than just kind of loosing about it. And it But it pretty quickly morphs into this rationalist, almost cult-like thing. The first step is that if you are a person who can go make a lot of money on Wall Street, much better that you use your time to go make a lot of money and give it away than you go do good things. So that you don't go be a doctor in Africa, you go make money and pay for 50 doctors to go to Africa. This idea infects Sam and his crowd. That's why they think it's earned to give is the idea. But then when it gets really kind of jumps to shark is, uh, is they start arguing about like what is the most efficient way to save, maximize the number of lives you save and they turn their attention to existential risks, AI, pandemics, climate, so on, on asteroids. And what can you do to reduce the likelihood of any of these existential risks to humanity coming about? And uh, of course, estimating the, the, the likelihood of these risks is itself a very dubious enterprise. But, but once you're there, you're in a place where you're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars are needed to address the problem. They're government-sized problems. And this, they, they, whatever you think of this, these people lived, ate, and breathed this stuff. And Sam Beckman-Fried's status and his sense of self was he wanted to be the most important person in effective altruism. That was his thing. And, uh, and so, the, so when you start looking at motives, it doesn't excuse anything. And everybody thinks I'm trying to make an excuse for him. That's not what, but it just, this is the, it's just the facts of the case. And it's interesting how people crawfish their way into certain behaviors. 
uh, with uh, with odd things in their minds. Mm -hmm. Well, I remember the Regas family of Adelphia Communications, if you remember that story in Cowdersport, PA, I think is it Pennsylvania? And they, they had become such big charitable donors in the local community that when people began to identify that there was some fraudulent behavior at Adelphia Communications, no one locally believed it or wanted to believe it. I'm not gonna move my belief system beyond the capital I've been given by this individual or this organization. So that, that town would have been almost 100% supportive of the decision-making, outcomes, everything at Adelphia Communication. But once you got out of that zip code, once you weren't part of the recipient group, you saw that there was something outrageous going on. And obviously that company and stock got crushed. It's, uh, yes. I mean, it is completely true that part of the charm of Sam Bankman fried and why he had the kind of social power he had, which in itself is extraordinary, right? I mean, 18, he goes from zero to 22 billion in 18 months. And, and the whole world, without really knowing who he is, puts him in a position of unbelievable authority. You think about the history of, of like generating wealth. I mean, FTX was valued at $40 billion by venture capitalists. And that, 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 it, we live in a, an age where this sort of thing happens, but it didn't. You know, it didn't used to happen like this. Uh, you know, you used to have to kind of like dig for oil or build a railroad. The, the speed of the speed of wealth creation is in itself, I think, kind of warping and distortive. But his charm, uh, it was something like this. I think a lot of people wanted there to be a Sam and that they wanted there to be that it's a kind of a byproduct of frustration with institutions and governments that they wanted there to be this this rich person who had who wanted to address problems that need to be addressed, that governments for one reason or another are paralyzed in the face of. And I think this was part of the reason why, you know, he's, he's able to move as fast as he is socially. If he was just another rich guy, I think it would have been a different story. Mm. Uh, let's put you uh, in a new role in life. You're the chief compliance and risk management officer for Silicon Valley. <laughs> um, and, and actually, I will expand, I will, I'll expand that role if you'd like to um, 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 have an even broader set of responsibilities, and that is for all of our investors at The Motley Fool, all of us as investors, you're now our chief compliance and risk officer because you've spent the time to study the most recent, most significant uh, uh, collapse. So what, are the holes, what, so what are the holes that allow this train wreck to happen? What are the, that's mixing metaphors, but it's... It's one of them is that a lot of the big accounting firms wouldn't audit crypto. So you already had not that the big accounting firms aren't capable of presiding over a disaster, but you already had a situation as a Silicon Valley investor where you're looking at firms that are not conventionally audited. They might have some little auditor you've never heard of if they have one, or they might just sketch out their balance sheets. Like, like, you know, like a third grader on a piece of paper and fax it to you. Uh, so, um, chief, so if, what, what, what would I, what would say, in retrospect, wasn't obvious in, it wasn't obvious at, in the moment, right? Because 120 people invested in it. Uh, and, but, but if you go back, you say, what should have flagged, we have flagged is just like, we're not, we're not going there. Well, I would say no board of directors is a pretty good sign that there's a problem. Uh, that if there's absolutely no one else who knows what's going on inside the business, added to uh, no C CFO, 
um, added to no organization chart. Like you can't actually know who works. I mean, that here. was a pretty telling moment in 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 Go Infinite when uh, a, a, a SBF simply asked, "Why would I have a CFO? <laughs> Why would I have a CFO?" And or and and actively hostile to organization charts and listed employees. The fact that this, you know, you have your you have the book there, right? Mm -hmm. If you take the Everyone jacket off. Mm -hmm. you take the jacket off the book. If you take this, if you take the jacket off the book mm -hmm. um, and just hold it up, the the look on the inside of the jacket. And uh, so, the, Sam, because there's so many emotional problems and psychological problems in the company. So so the inside of the jacket. Right. So that is the only organization chart known to exist for FTX. And it was created by the company psychiatrist. And, and it was Sam's per, and Caroline's personal psychiatrist who they moved to the Bahamas to deal with all the unhappiness in the company. And the, and the shrink can't get his mind around the problems people have unless he knows where they are in the organization. So in therapy, he starts to tease that out and he, he creates the only organization chart, sticks it on a thumb drive and gives it to me and he vanishes. But Sam didn't know that existed. So you're asking for compliance. So, uh, so those those three things are kind of tells. You know what else is a tell? It's it's this fear of, and I don't know what to say about this exactly. So, if you're a venture capitalist, your biggest fear is not that Sam Bankman-Fried takes your money and you lose thirty million dollars. It's that FTX is the next trillion dollar company and you weren't there. That's the calculation they're all making. Is that this thing looks like a rocket ship. It actually, actually has gone in revenues from 20 to 100 to 950 to a billion. And, and, it's a buy, and the revenues are gonna be a byproduct of like how many people wanna gamble in this casino. And, uh, and it's, it, the, the VCs I talked to, and I interviewed them before everything went bad and after. Before it went bad, they said they thought Sam might be the world's first trillionaire. So, so they're thinking like that. Now, whether that's right or not, they're thinking that scale. And it's, it's, so what I would say is compliance officer, whenever you come to me with a fear of missing out story, and it's just like, we got to do this because mm -hmm. it's going to be, that's where you got to be the let's most. Let's see if young. they have a board. <laughs> yes, let's see. Let's, let's just see if they have a board. <laughs> uh, you but know, it is funny. It is funny. We, we had uh, meetings with a venture capitalist in San Francisco when we took our learning and development group at the Motley Fool to meet a bunch of companies in San Francisco when they graduated the program. And one of them presented the challenge they had faced at the firm, which is that they had decided to take the next incoming group of analysts and teach them about the mistakes that had been made in terms of the losers. They went through a whole process and they were like, it would be great just to remove a few of these. And that analyst group ended up having the worst performance because they did remove the most losers and they removed the one you know, the one Tesla or the one Airbnb and that and the math crushes you if you if you do that. So they went back and said, we are now training our analysts to make mistakes, to to keep going as boldly as possible. And that does open the door on investing in something, a business that doesn't have a board or a CFO and ends up being a total collapse. Yeah. And it, it was also this is also um, a, a story of the lure of crypto, right, that that what got me interested in this in the first place was not was not like Bitcoin. I was kind of like assaulted by crypto people for 10 years to try to write it, to write a book about them. And I never could get that interested. But when 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 all of a sudden the market cap of cryptocurrency is at two trillion dollars, you're looking and you're thinking like this is starting to have this is getting to the size where this is going to have social consequences. That it isn't just like, oh, a, a funny little gambling uh, sideshow. And and. Uh, and the, and and so the 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 VCs 
are looking like, how do we get into this? Because it got so big. And you can't really blame them, although you can sort of ask them like why you didn't insist on some insight into the business. Mm -hmm. But if you had insisted, you would have been left out. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I mean, it's that, that, but so you're saying I'm the compliance officer. I would just say it's, those are the moments where you were actually at the biggest risk of mm. doing something dumb. It's that, it's that, oh, I got to be there. I got to be at that part. We had a wonderful um, uh, conversation with a professor at NYU uh, Business School named Dr. Melissa Schilling, and she was talking about a book, Quirky, that she's written and really assessing the patterns of the great founder leaders of companies, I think not entirely companies, uh, innovators and the changes that they drove. And she was identifying that they often wouldn't probably be uh, high on the list of EQ. They might have oh. been very high IQ, but they, oh. but they didn't, they didn't do a good job of of collaborative work efforts and building consensus because they were separate from the from the group and they were thinking differently and they didn't have a filter to understand how they were being perceived by others. And that, so I, I'd like to hear from you a little bit of the SBF balance of IQ, EQ, and how you think about that, how we evaluate leaders and what we should be looking for, um, knowing that, uh, you know, uh, neither one or an emphasis on either one is going to automatically give you one winner after the other. But how how should we, in evaluating leaders of private or public companies that we invest in, evaluate somebody along the continuum of EQ and IQ? Well, in the case of Sam Batten Fries, he defines one end of the continuum, right? He's one that he is. This is a, a totally socially isolated kid who knows he doesn't feel empathy or pleasure. Or and is unable to make facial expressions uh, when until he's 20 years old and does not does not feel your pain uh, and and knows like born with these qualities and it, people around him um, are always compensating for the fallout from his lack of interest in your emotional state and lack of sense of emotional intelligence. Nishad, who just finished testifying, Nishad Singh, who just finished testifying against him said to me once, back when things were good, he said, you know, um, my job my job here has been to be Sam's emotional intelligence because he doesn't have any. But I've watched him, he was kind of patting him on the back saying, in the last six months, he subcontracted some of his IQ to use it as EQ, and he's gotten a little better. But I, I, think, I think that to answer the second part of the question is like how you, how you take that into account when you're evaluating someone who's doing something creating a business. I mean, you can't create an organization of people without, without keen emotional intelligence. It's going to survive. It may be the person who creates the organization doesn't supply that, but the absence of it should be something that puts you on red alert, uh, I, I think. And, and I thought I, one of the ways I saw this story right from the beginning was this is what happens when you exalt a certain kind of intelligence and pay no attention to other kinds of intelligence. And they're, they're constantly talking about they're only interested in really high IQ people. They're really only interested in people who are kind of mathy, sciencey. They don't really, Sam, like from the, for, at age seven, uh, begins to think anything in the humanities is all bullshit. Makes arguments how Shakespeare is an idiot. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's that kind of thing that it's, this isn't smart. This is a blind spot. Uh, it's a blind spot that you need to compensate. For. Mm, it probably ends up being ultimately more about evaluating the full team 
And if everyone starts anchoring at one end of that continuum or any particular skill becomes so emphasized in an organization that the other side isn't represented, you start to get imbalance and things, blind spots emerge all potentially all over the place. Michael, if you were to testify, ah. if you were to testify, do you think you would be helpful to the prosecution or the defense? Um, probably the prosecution. Uh, the, because the fact that what gets into a courtroom is pretty sterile. Like you're not allowed to introduce context, emotion, feeling, all that stuff, really. The, and the facts that I, the, 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 the sort of the facts of the book that would find their way into the court all would just be damning. Mm -hmm. Uh, thing, I mean, I mean, I, I could list them, but I, but so I think, but but at this point, I don't think the prosecution needs a lot of help. Mm -hmm. And uh, and also at this point, you know, it's funny, lawyers, they don't like uncertainty. And I think what I'd really be is a little ball of uncertainty, uh, that I'd create a kind of odd climate in the courtroom, and I don't expect mm -hmm. to be asked to testify. As always, people in the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Mary Long. Thanks for listening. Tomorrow, we're playing another interview from our New York event. We'll see you then, fools.